0: So if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 6. This is the last of those eight night visions that Zechariah's had and that we've been looking at together. Remember the state of the people of God. They are in shambles. They're in a ruined city. The temple is... Stalled. It's, the work has not been completed, uh, they have enemies on every side, they're in a sad state. And so this eighth vision is designed to generate hope within us. Fuel our faith. When everything else, when circumstances look to shatter, And overwhelm us. When everything seems to be against us. That you should just give up. Just walk away. When the crisis that we face. Are seem overwhelming. Sometimes those crises are sudden trials. They come upon us. We're not expecting them. Sometimes they're slow. Chronic pain and suffering in the life of God's people. They're there for a long time. How do you find hope in these? Where do you find strength to carry on when there seems to be no real grounds for having any hope at all? How will God's people rebuild the temple? How will they press on through the pain of blisters and sinfulness and weariness? How will they ever complete the temple project? How are they gonna do that? How are they gonna fight off the paralysis of fear knowing their neighbors hate them and love to see them annihilated? How are they gonna press on? How are they gonna continue? How are they gonna persevere on a path of obedience towards God when that path does not take them through quiet waters? and peaceful valleys. It's a barren desert. There's no water, there's no relief, and it hurts. Everything seems to hinder them, not help them. What's gonna generate a faith that is sustained and perseveres through crisis, immediate crisis, through those long, prolonged crises? Well, it's what my brother spoke of in the introduction. Clinging to Christ. How do you cling to Christ? Amidst constant turmoil and hardship, unrelenting hardship, how do you cling to Christ? Well, Zechariah answers that for us. And it may be surprising. Zechariah's answer is actually the doctrine of God. Who is he? What's he like? Knowing God. That is going to be the sustaining element. Nothing but God. Who he is, as revealed in the scriptures. His character, his person, his nature. Nothing but God will help you persevere when those trials come. When you are empty, when you do not have strength of your own, you need God. You need to know who he is and look to him. And so that's what we're going to see today. Verses 1 to 5, the reign of God, 5 to 8, the reliability of God, and verse 8, the rest of God. So look at the reign of God, the reliability of God. And the rest of God. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 8. Again I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold four chariots came out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses and the fourth chariot dappled horses all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. The reign of God, the reliability of God, the rest of God. Notice the reign of God. This vision starts out with four chariots. You notice those? Four of them. Four horse-drawn chariots. Different colored horses pull them. And they're coming out from between two mountains. They're sent out, verse 5, by the Lord of all the earth. Now the chariot was the most versatile, deadly, ancient weapon. It had been used by the Babylonian hordes. They recognized that. It was, if you will, the biblical equivalent of the F-15 fighter jet. It's agile, destructive, deadly, and devastating in its effects. Zachariah's vision, though, starts out right out of the starting blocks, right, with this unmistakable military imagery of these chariots coming out. Only this time, it's not the Babylonians who are behind the chariots. It's not the Egyptians. It's God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He is who dispels these angelic troops to go out for his purposes, to do his work good will, for his glory and for our good in the world. So this military picture, and then he links that military picture with another picture, these two big bronze mountains. Remember what the central issue is in Zechariah, what's been taking place, what's been going on, the central problem, the, God's people need to finish the temple. And that helps us understand the significance of these two bronze mountains. So, 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 13 and following tell us that the original temple that Solomon had built, they had these two massive bronze pillars right at the gateway in the main entrance of the temple. And when you walked into the temple, you had to walk between these two bronze pillars. The first pillar was called jakin which means he establishes. The second pillar was named Boaz, which means in him there is strength. So if you were going into the temple to worship, you had to walk between these two big bronze pillars. One, he establishes. Two, he uh, establishes his people, and he is the source and fountainhead of his people's strength. You you walked through those every time you went to the temple. But those pillars are gone. Those pillars have been wiped out. They're not there. They've been silenced. Whatever they used to say, they're not not saying that anymore. The people have been defeated. They've been robbed of their strength. They're living uh, basically a sad parody of the life they used to live. But you put these two visions together, the military might, these two bronze mountains, the allusions to the temple. Do you see the prophet's message for the people of God? He is saying to to them, yes, those earthly pillars... Those pillars of bronze, they may be gone, but let me pull back the veil for you so you can see, just for a moment, let you see what the sanctuary of heaven is like, where my throne is, and my throne is established. Here is the gate. Here is the entry into my sanctuary in glory and immense, immovable power in which Jacob and Boaz, they were just echoes, just echoes. Now, towering over Zechariah, mountains of bronze. Not pillars. Mountains of bronze. Vast, unassailable, massive mountains. Peaks lost from the, I mean, the peaks of these things are in the clouds. You can't see the tops of these things. It is demonstrating visually for Zechariah. Whatever uh, the appearance, whatever uh, the contradictions that may seem in the circumstances in which they live in, Jerusalem lies in utter ruins. The enemies of God's people surround them on every side. Zechariah is to understand that the Lord does indeed establish his people, that he remains their strength even if Jacob and Boaz are gone. God Remains their strength. Nothing can shake the fact that he will care for and protect his people. And so to prove it, he deploys these chariots. The chariots of heaven's armies. To go out from his presence to do his holy will in the world. What we have here is the... It's very similar And uh, maybe the equivalent of 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through 23. Remember the story of Elisha's servant? The king of Syria has has some trouble with Elisha. So the king of Syria sends his army to uh, to take the prophet of God. And so they surround Elisha, and they have his tent surrounded. And in the morning, uh, Elisha's servant goes out, and you can imagine him wiping sleep out of his eyes and looking around the mountains. And he sees the king of Syria's army. They surrounded them. Him, the old prophet of God. And so Elisha, though, he reports it to Elisha. And Elisha just simply says, do not be afraid. There are more for us than are against us. Remember that story? And then Elisha prays that the eyes of a servant would be opened up and that he would see. And when it, his eyes are opened, and when he looks around, he sees, right, these heavenly hosts in chariots blazing with fire and they are outnumbering the enemies of God's people. Zachariah's vision is, is that, right? So take a look around you. So you see the rubble and the ruin of this wrecked and fallen city. Take a long, hard look, right, at your enemies. Take a long, hard look at your inadequate resources and and your own failures and see them and know them. No, yes, you've got trouble all around on every side, and you've got trouble in your own heart. Take a good, hard look at all these circumstances, but then you hear the word of God say, do not be afraid. There are more for us. Than are against us. John paraphrases the same sentiment anyway when he says he that's in you is greater than he that's in the world and that's a message that we need to hear it's that the Lord reigns that is the point that history belongs to him that trials even the trials that come, um, They are his servants, and they are deployed. Even when they come in sorrow and and are hard in our lives, they are deployed to accomplish his purposes. And we need to pray. That we would pray like Elisha did for his servant. Lord, would you open our eyes? That we would see the truth behind these circumstances. We see the truth behind these difficult things. Uh, the Lord, and just as Elisha's servants, all these chariots of the Lord deployed into the defense and protection of his people. The Lord, he, is, he reigns. He has not been dethroned. There are more for us than against us. Even when it seems the opposite. And we don't, can't process it. We can't, we, it does not seem apparent. The truth is there are more for us than against us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he that is in us is greater than he that's in the world. Christian, you have more resources than you could ever even imagine. You have those resources if you're in Christ, because God reigns. Then notice the reliability of God, verses 5 to 8 here. So these angelic chariots, these horses, they're sent out, right? Uh, Our translation says, to the four winds of heaven. And according to that reading of this text, the interpreting angel uh, who's assisting Zechariah, he's telling what's going on. He he says these four chariots, they're being sent in in these different directions across the globe to all four points of the compass. The four winds of heaven, all right, Uh, emphasizing um, the lordship of God, that he is God. He reigns over all the earth. And I want to say that may be a correct translation. It may be, however, there is a problem in verse six. And we don't do this often, but we're gonna look at this problem. Verse six, there's some difficulties. If, under, if verse five is meant to un- be understood as the four points of the compass, like some scholars hold to, That has led some scholars then to amend verse six to read differently, to translate verse six to fit their interpretation of verse five. So if you're using an NIV, for instance, you'll notice that verse six reads this way. The one with the black horses is going out to the north country, the one with the white horses going toward the west, and the one with the dapple horses going toward the south. Those translators amended verse 6 ever so slightly, but they did so just to fit with the four points of the compass. All right? Presumably, the others are going uh, to the east the red horses would be going there. But that's the fatal flaw here because the red horses aren't mentioned as going east. If your point is to say, here's the four points of the compass, you're going to say going north, these are going south, these are going east, these are going west. But he doesn't do that. Okay? The black ones go north. The white ones, according to this rating. um, the dapple uh, are going west, the dappled headed horses are going south, so that would mean, according to my Appalachian geography, the red ones have to be going east, but the red ones aren 't mentioned at all, okay? Some have said, well, the red horses, uh, perhaps that has just been lost in the process of getting translation. Uh, maybe that has been lost in the course of time, but that's sheer speculation, that's an argument from silence, and it's groping for an explanation that could fit how you are viewing things, the the logic in which you uh, understand verse 5 to mean. Now, if you have an ESV, or if you don't have ESV, use the Pew Bible for a second. They translate the Hebrew text here without amending it. And so it reads this way. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dapple ones go towards the south country. Okay? So they're not sitting the four points of, uh, of the compass. They're, they're not all going in different directions. Two of them are going north. One of them's going south. He deploys them according to his wisdom where they need to be and where he wants them to go. Um, If that's the case, verse 5 is probably best translated, not uh, these are going out for the four winds of heaven, like the ESV and the NIV says. It's probably better what King James or New American Standard says, that these are the four spirits of heaven, being sent out so these four angelic forces he is commissioning them he is sending them out he is the sovereign lord and he is sending them out to accomplish his will now i've got through all that i know it talking about textual criticism is a good way to lose you i don't want to lose you i want to pull you back in real quick okay all right there's an irony here the irony is, if this passage, and it is, it's intended to teach us to trust in the divine sovereignty of the Lord, that he is completely reliable, that he has not forgotten you, you can rely and trust on him for your hopes, for your security, for your your the security of his people, for his protection, for his love. He will keep his promises, isn't it? Absolutely stunning and ironic that they would take that passage and make a verse fit what they think it should be. (laughs) Rather than just take the text at what it actually says. It's just stunning. We're supposed to learn you can trust in the Lord. His promises are mutable. They're unchanging. He is absolutely and completely faithful. And yet we change the text to fit the dictates of our best guesses. And friends, it's not just the scholars who do that. We're tempted to do that in our own lives, aren't we? That we take God's word and it's rough. So I want to take it and make it fit something that's more palpable to me. We think of our own daily struggles, the perplexities of today and tomorrow and the next and the next day and the next day. And rather than just taking God at face value, rather than just trust the text, we argue with the text. We argue with God. I think Zechariah 6 here, it actually, if we just submit. To the text, instead of arguing with the text and the words here, you will find it's not going to endanger what the text is saying. You're going to find the truth and the support and the comfort and the security of knowing this is God's Word and the truths that are presented here. This is our only and true lasting hope His Word. This is always a. This is a trouble for all of us, because this has always been the trouble, all the way back to the Garden. Remember, Satan. Has God really said that? Can you really rely on what He says? Can you really trust what He says? Christian, I'm telling you, you can trust His Word. You can't. He's utterly and completely reliable. It's his word. It's true. It's unchanging. You can trust him. Okay? He reigns. He is utterly reliable. Now look at the rest. God's rest. The rest of God. So these four colored groups of horses, we see. I wonder, do they ring a bell? Scholars among you, do these ring a bell? Does it bring back any thoughts? Well, if you were here a number of weeks ago, you would have seen in Zechariah's first vision that he also speaks of these different colored troops of horses. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, he sees a similar vision. Only in that instance, they're not sent out to, uh, well, when they are sent out, they're sent out to do reconnaissance. They're checking their what's going on across the globe. Remember, they come back. They report to God. This is what's going on. The world is at rest. The nations are at rest. There in verse 15. And when they, the report that the nations are at rest gets back to the Lord, the Lord is exceedingly angry. The quiet rest of the nations, it is a self-assured, self-reliant, arrogant rest. They are resting in their own self-sufficiency, in the security that they think they have provided for themselves. These are the nations that oppose God. They oppose the worship of God. They oppose the people of God. Their rest is provoking the Lord of hosts. And so he promised in that first vision that there would be judgment. And now, in the last vision of these eight, these four troops, these colored horses, now their mission is not reconnaissance, it's action. These chariots, they go out. These weapons of war, God's in. Forcing the ju- justice, the 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 uh, he's defending his people. He sends them out. The two troops, the black and white, they're sent to the north. Think of just where the north. Uh, what's north of Israel? It's where Assyria came from. It's where Babylon came from. And they descended upon the people of God. Uh, the other troop sent to the south. The, the dapple horses, they go to the south. This is where the other, the ancient enemy of the people of God, Egypt, dwelt. And here's the Lord. And he's utterly reliable. He keeps his promise in the first vision. He promised the justice. And he promised vengeance upon them. Now in the last vision, it's coming to pass. And now it's not the nations who are at rest and that. It's a false rest, right? It's not a real rest. It's an imagined security. It's a imagined security based on their own pride. Now, what do we see in verse 8? It is God, his spirit, who is at rest. Justice is done. God's people are protected. His promises are kept. His spirit is at rest here. And that is the foundation, friends, For all of our hope, all of our security in the midst of trials that are seemingly impossible here, it's the serene rest of God. God is unperturbed. He is not bothered by these trials here, or is he? They don't affect him. He's not troubled by them. They might bother us. They may trouble us. They may be overwhelming to us. But God in his wisdom and providence is unsurprised. And he is at perfect rest every step of the way. He's saying, don't be scared. You return to exiles. Don't be scared. You who are dwelling in the ruins of a broken down Jerusalem, don't, don't fret that. Do not concede defeat to your enemies. You don't sign one uh, little truce with them. You do not give in to the enemy. You don't do that because God's rule is effortless. He's unperturbed. He's not bothered even by the worst hostility of the worst of nations. It is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 verse 15. Before him, the nations of this earth, they're like a drop of a bucket. You know what this phrase means. A drop of a bucket. You've heard that phrase, right? Which doesn't mean some of the water spills out. It means that condensation that builds up on the outside and just kind of drips off. That's what they are compared to him. It is what Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 says. The one who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He has said his king, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Zion, his holy hill, and he will reign forever. And friends, isn't that the message of the book of Revelation? <laughs> he reigns? He re- the, the lamb wins? And... The book of Revelation builds on these very image, the imagery that's given here in Zechariah. In Revelation 6, seven seals are opened, each of them describing a different facet of judgment, the judgment of God on a rebel world. And each one of those judgments comes, remember, with a different colored horse, a white one, a red one, a black one, a pale one. And when you get to Revelation 19, verse 11, well, there's a rider on the white horse, and he's identified in such a way that makes every struggling, suffering Christian, it makes our hearts leap and sing for joy amidst all of our trials. Revelation chapter 9, starting at verse 11, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one setting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name that is written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Zacharias sees. And this is a message of comfort and encouragement to a suffering, hurting people amidst the rubble of Jerusalem. And the Bible unfolds and it carries that out, doesn't it? And the entirety of biblical revelation is this message of comfort for all the hurting people of God in every age that Jesus Christ, he rides forth to defend his people. It is Christ Jesus himself who subdues the nations with the word of his mouth. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the secret that changes everything, right? So how do you keep going? How do you keep going? When people hate you, how do you keep going? You remember He sits on a white horse and he rides forth to conquer. How do you keep going when tomorrow is going to be here in 24 hours and you don't even have strength for today? How are you going to have strength for tomorrow? You remember the King Jesus. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he has triumphed. And how will you press on? How are you going to fight your fight with sin, the sin of your own heart? How are you going to fight that when you don't know... All you seem to know is failure. you got, you got temptations on every side. You remember that whatever spiritual forces may be there and, and, and are that tor- t- turmoil and that war is going on, you remember this. the Spirit of God is at rest. They don't face Him. They might phase you, but they don't face Him. He will defend you. He will defend, you. he will protect you. You will be kept by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. He knows what you need. He knows perfectly, and he'll give it to you. And we need he knows we need to be reminded about that. He knows that we need to be reminded that he reigns, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christians we need to constantly be reminded of that. Well, let me just make an evangelistic plea at this point. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, whether you're the youngest child in this room or whether you are the got a hoary-haired saint like me, if you're not a Christian and you know you have no relationship with saving relationship with God, you do not know that... Your sins are forgiven. You do not know any hope. And all you do is fight in this world and there's never relief. I want you to understand what this passage means for you. It means that if you will not have Jesus save you and rescue you, you will have him to judge you, to condemn you. He will fight against you with the word of his mouth. He will conquer you. You will not stay neutral. There is no Swiss, Switzerland, in spiritual matters. If you will not have him save you, he will judge you. The happy victory of of his that is given in our hearts. If we we will not share in that and receive that by faith, if we will not receive by faith what he has done for us in Christ, we will not know this sweet victory. We will know his terrible wrath. That's what we will do. So in the words of Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Lest you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I plead with you, if you're not a Christian, take refuge in him. That's your only hope. The reign of God, the anchor, uh, the solid rock of our confidence, uh, uh, he is completely reliable. His word, his promises, they're absolutely true. They will never be changed and the rest of God. Our hearts may be wrestling and having, we have turmoil in this world. Lord, listen to this sweet word. God is at rest. It doesn't bother him. He's not touched that way. He's not surprised at life's hard providences. Our God remains serene and omnipotent in his rest because his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has conquered and he reigns over all things and he governs by his sovereignty for the good of his people and for his greater glory. And I pray that God would bless his word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who sits on the throne and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to rest in your marvelous sovereignty. When all around us, when all the circumstances, when a world is filled with brokenness, says otherwise. Teach us from your word today. Lord, for those who are not believers in Jesus, would you open their eyes, just like Elisha's servant, would you open their eyes to see their great need is Christ? Bring them to Christ. May they see in Jesus everything that they need for safety and salvation, for protection. And may they run to him, knowing that he will save them. Lord, would you grant that this victory in our hearts would be present, that we know and trust in you. You are not tossed about like the waves of the sea. You are are our rock of confidence and surety, And you will not be moved. Hear us as we pray, as we cry to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.